Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Matthew Lockwood to discuss his new book, To Begin the World Over Again. Dr. Lockwood discusses the global consequences of the American Revolution, showing how the conflict set in motion disastrous wars and turmoil all over the world. Dr. Lockwood, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, uh, I'm currently assistant professor of history at the University of Alabama, um, but my route to Alabama was a bit circuitous. Um, I was born in Michigan, grew up uh, all along the East Coast, um, mostly in the D.C. area, Maryland and Virginia, but also in North Carolina, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Maryland, uh, a master's degree at Boston College, um, and my Ph.D. at Yale University. Um, after graduating with my PhD in 2014, I was a post postdoc at uh, the Yale Center for the Study of Representative Institutions, um, and then a assistant professor of history at the University of Warwick in the United Kingdom before moving to my current post at the University of Alabama. Um, my oh, go ahead. oh, I was just going to ask, what does your early scholarship look like? So the, the dissertation work and the dissertation book that followed um, was on uh, early modern English social history. So uh, quite a distance from the book we're here to talk about today. Um, but I'll, I'll explain that, that first book and then my um, rather winding route to this second larger project. Um, my dissertation work and the book that followed um, was interested in how states in general, but uh, Britain in particular, attempted to control disorder, crime, violence in an age before widespread uh, bureaucratic institutions. Basically, how do you police without police? Um, I published uh, that dissertation material as a book in in 2017. And it was um, out of this book, oddly enough, that the idea for a book on the American Revolution came. Um, During my my research for the dissertation and the book that followed, I looked at a lot of court cases. Um, And one of these court cases I found particularly interesting, although not for the the initial book that I wrote. Um, The court case took place in London um, at the court of the Old Bailey, um, and it was about a duel. The duel was between two men, both from Maryland, transplanted to London. And in reading the case, it seemed that the the dispute that led to the duel had been about the American Revolution. Indeed, both men had come to London because of the American Revolution and then fought a duel in in which one of the men died over the American Revolution. And I I thought this was a, a fascinating case. It had nothing to do with my dissertation or the first book. So I, I put it aside as an, an interesting tidbit. Maybe I'd return to it at, an, at another time. 
And I started to think about it again um, after some interactions with my parents. Now, after the first book came out, my parents were, as parents are, very proud of the accomplishment. Um, they bought a copy of the first book, as dear as it was, um, and uh, started trying to read it. And I, I had warned them. I, I told them, this is an academic book. It, it relies on the reader having a certain amount of academic background and context. It's heavily theoretical at times. It's dense at times. There's no need for you to read this book. But again, as parents are wont to do, they ignored me and plowed ahead. Um, and so every time I, I came home over the next couple of years, I would see the copy of my book that they owned and I'd see their bookmark and the very <laughs> slow progress they were making through the book, a page, a couple pages every time I, had come, I came home. And I'm sure this is a, a common experience for academics whose parents are proud and want to engage with their work. Um, and for me, it, it, it inspired me to perhaps write something for people like my parents, um, people who are interested and curious, intelligent, who like to read, but didn't quite have the academic background to really enjoy my first book. And so I, I thought about this dual case again. Um, it, was, uh, it took place between two men from Maryland. My parents lived in Maryland, so they knew that history fairly well. And I thought um, maybe I'd write a micro history, something narrative and focused that looked at this dual case and what it said about um, that period of time, the American Revolution, both in Maryland and in Britain. And in, in starting to do this research and following um, the leads that came about and in, in researching these two individuals and their families and the context in which they came um, to fight their duel, I found all sorts of tendrils of the American Revolution and the impact it had in, in places far and wide, not just Maryland and Britain, um, but places like India um, and Africa, um, the Caribbean, Australia. And so from this very focused uh, micro-history, I started to think about writing a broader work, um, something that looked at um, the broader consequences of the American Revolution outside of America. Um, and so... Um, if you read the book, you will see that the original case, the case of the duel that inspired the book, is nowhere to be found. Um, perhaps I should have mentioned it in the acknowledgments. Um, <laughs> it seems like a, a, a good place to acknowledge my debt to that court case and those um, unfortunate individuals. But yes, that's that's how it came about. A good reminder to all listeners, too, to hang on to the odd little tidbits you come across in the archive from time to time. They can go in very interesting directions. Yeah, they, they really can. I, I think that's one of the most rewarding things about research. And, um, and sometimes you know, you'll never touch them again, and sometimes they'll go nowhere. It'll be a dead end. But, but sometimes they'll inspire um, another project, another book, another article. So I wanted to, to shift gears to talk now about the book specifically. And I wanted to be, begin with where you pick up, which is talking about law and order and the creation of a penal state in Britain. And how does that come out of the American Revolution? Yes. And this is um, sort of intellectually the connection with the first book. But I, my original work was on um, how states like Britain control crime and disorder um, before they have widespread bureaucratic institutions. Um, in Britain at the time, in the 18th century, when the American Revolution breaks out, um, 
Britain has no professional police force. Um, policing is done by untrained, unpaid, part-time amateurs. They are often selected for a year at a time. Um, they have no expertise. Um, there's very little sort of motivation um, uh, other than sort of internal motivation um, and an idea of service and prestige to um, to move them forward in, in this important work. Um, and so this, this creates a problem for Britain. Um, its system is, um, is part-time and amateur. It's, um, and so it's not always entirely effective. It's, its effectiveness is varied based on the individual and the individual's character and personality and individual drive. Um, so the government knows it can't catch or punish the vast majority of offenders, um, people that commit crimes. So what it does to balance this out is it opts for a policy of judicial terror. And this is you know, what a lot of people know about um, pre-modern judicial systems is that they are brutal, they are violent, um, public executions and the like. And this is true of Britain as well. Um, by the end of the 18th century, there are over 200 offenses that carry the death penalty, at least technically. And this includes um, you know, things that that in some places in America carry a, a sentence of death, like murder. Um, but it also includes things like theft and theft of a very small amount uh, of money. Theft of more than one shilling is technically um, a capital crime. So this creates another dilemma for the British authorities. The system doesn't work. The system of judicial terror doesn't work because the people making some of the decisions in these cases are individuals. England and Britain, just like America does today, has a jury system. And jurors in Britain are not willing to put people to death for such minor crimes. And so you get this really odd um, practice that you see repeat repeated in, in court records, and what's often called um, pious perjury. And what this means is that jurors will often intentionally undervalue the, uh, the value of uh, an item or goods that have been stolen. So you see people, um, a, a, a sheep has been stolen, and they value it at under a shilling so that the person accused isn't executed. And you even see more ridiculous things like three shillings being stolen and then valued by the jury at under a shilling to prevent, <laughs> to prevent the person from going to the gallows. And so there's clearly a problem here. Um, Britain doesn't have the resources and the institutions to really police its population. The population doesn't have the stomach for the judicial terror that um, Britain has substituted for a robust policing system. So what, what happens is Britain has hundreds, thousands of felons who it can't execute, but it doesn't want to let off scot-free. In this period, prison doesn't exist as a, as a punishment. There are, there are jails, but they are largely to hold people for trial or for debtors. It's not really something that they, they can sentence the population, the, the convict population to. And so initially what they decide upon is to use their colonies to solve this problem. And they take their convicts and they ship them 
to the Americas, largely to Maryland and Virginia, where they sell their labor um, largely to tobacco planters, convict, a convict labor system. They call this the transportation system. And these convicts are labor is sold for a period of seven to 14 years, depending on their crime, at which point they can either settle in America or return back to Britain. And this work, system works pretty well. It allows the population um, room to convict people without the fear that they'll be executed. But it also doesn't allow criminals to, to get away scot-free. And so it seems to, to, to achieve the balance the British government is looking for in this period. The problem is that when the American Revolution breaks out, the system is disrupted. Uh, the American colonists, um, in declaring their independence, are building a new nation, a city on the hill, and have no interest in welcoming in waves of British convicts. These are not the sort of people they want to, to, to use as building blocks of their new nation. And so um, the Americans refuse to accept any more British prisoners. Uh, the British authorities look for other places to land their conflicts convicts. They try um, places in South America and the Spanish Empire, but they're denied entry there. They attempt um, to transport them to Africa, but all the convicts die. Um, and so they, take, they, they hit on a couple of solutions. We'll talk about the, the second, I think, later on in the conversation. But one of the solutions is to start using prisons as a form of punishment. And this this dovetails, this, this crisis of punishment caused by the American Revolution dovetails with a pre-existing movement for penal reform. Um, a lot of these reformers are, are Quakers. Um, some of them are um, figures influ influenced by Enlightenment thought, the thought of Cesare Beccaria in particular. And what they want is a judicial system that focuses not on retribution, but on rehabilitation. They think it's a waste either to execute these people or to ship them abroad. These people could be the, the workers that power forward the growing industrial economy of England. And so what they want is a system of penitentiaries, prisons that focus on reformation of character. Um, they want solitary confinement, labor in prisons. They want to prepare these people for productive lives. This is what Jeremy Bentham calls mills to grind rogues honest. And so they start building a series of prisons. So England's penal regime completely transforms and we start to get the use of, of penitentiaries in Britain. Um, you know, again, a sort of unusual consequence of the American Revolution. And what about norms around political dissent? It's probably not a surprise that um, the seeming treason that, that awakes in the 13 colonies, this would have Britons conceivably rethinking what might be acceptable, what might be treasonous. But how does it play out because of the Revolutionary War? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing because when the war begins, when the revolution first breaks out, um, Britain is very divided over it. Um, there are many in Britain, especially in places like London, um, places like Glasgow that have um, longstanding trade connections with America. Um, many people are sympathetic. Um, some even side with the colonists. Um, there are people like um, John Wilkes, the radical mayor of London, a member of parliament, um, who is uh, celebrated for his critiques of the British government on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, in the lead up to the American Revolution, there are uh, Americans 
who are raising toasts to John Wilkes and sending him gifts of tobacco. Um, but other figures as well, Thomas Paine, famously, Edmund Burke, Richard Price. And there are many of these, and they publish materials and, and give speeches in which they are sympathetic with the grievances of the American colonists. They think the American colonists have a point. And this isn't an uncommon um, way of thinking in Britain. Because there are many in Britain who fear some of the same things. There are many in Britain who want further political reform, uh, more uh, fair representation in Parliament, who believe the British monarchy is, and the British ministry are becoming too powerful and becoming autocratic. Um, they're worried about aristocratic government. And so in 1775, Britain is divided over the American Revolution. And the government sponsors. Um, writers, pamphleteers, to combat this sort of sympathetic portrayal of the American colonies. But it doesn't, at least initially, suppress this dissent. I mean, this really changes as the war goes on, as it becomes clear that Britain might not win this war, and especially after France joins the war in 1778. Um, after France joins the war, the revolution really comes to Britain. After 1778, there are invasion scares. Um, there are actually planned French invasions of Britain. Um, they, they fail. They don't get off the ground. But it's not an unrealistic fear. There are raids on the British coast. Uh, John Paul Jones, most famously, is raiding uh, the coasts of Ireland, uh, Scotland, and England. Um, there are terrorist attacks. There's a, a Scottish man who has lived a period of his life in America and embraces the American cause. Uh, meets with Silas Dean in, in Paris and returns to Britain to burn naval shipyards. Um, there's a, a plot to kidnap George III, um, in which an American is implicated, probably incorrectly, um, but this sort of story gets out. They find that there are spies in the British Navy passing secrets to the French, which leads to the capture of a British fleet. Um, the war really comes to Britain itself. And as this happens, dissent starts to look more like treason than it had before. Um, but the real change, I think, comes in 1780 with the Gordon riots. Um, and this is a traumatic event in, in Britain's history, and in, in London's history in particular. Um, the Gordon riots were uh, at least initially caused by a protest movement. Uh, in 1778, as part of its attempt to gain uh, more, more troops for the, the fight that's spreading around the world, the British had relaxed some restrictions on Catholics. This went against longstanding precedent in Britain, and Protestant protesters gathered um, to pressure Parliament to overturn this decision. Now, this led to about 60,000 people marching on Westminster in 1780. Um, Parliament refused to overturn its decision, and riots began. And although these riots started as sort of anti-Catholic riots, they really uh, took on a very different character. They took on a sort of broadly anti-government character, and specifically um, targeted aspects of the judicial system that had been changing in this period. They, in particular, attacked prisons release prisoners, attacking this new penal regime, which is growing as a result of the American Revolution. 
Um, the Gordon's riots last for several days. A couple hundred people are killed. Um, huge sections of the city are are uh, torn apart, burned down. Um, eventually, it's suppressed by troops. Um, and in the wake of this, um, this this days long conflagration, um, the British government takes a more serious attitude towards dissent of any time of any type. It, it again becomes uh, akin to treason, um, which really changes the political outlook for Britain uh, for years to come. Now, as all this is going on, there are also events happening in Ireland, and Ireland is one of those places that American revolutionaries have a complicated relationship. What happens in Ireland as a result of the revolution? Yeah, the Irish case is a really interesting case because in some ways it's a, a what might have been if the British had acted or responded differently to um, the initial protests in America that became a revolution. Um, because Ireland in many ways was, a, was in a similar position as the American colonies. Um, it was itself um, treated as an imperial possession of Britain. Um, it had its own navigation acts, which prevented it from trading freely. Um, either with Europe or with uh, other colonies in the British Empire. So if it wanted to trade with with France or America, it had to trade through Britain first. Um, It had its own parliament, but its parliament was subservient to Britain's parliament. Um, It was also ruled by a a system of penal laws, which uh, restricted uh, the political rights, landholding rights uh, of Catholics, which made up the majority of the population. Um, So it had some of the same grievances as the American colonists um, in the 1770s. And so when the American Revolution begins, um, many in Ireland and in America see this as, see see a sense of common cause between the two uh, pieces of the British Empire. And indeed, there is um, an Irish Patriot Party that emerges which is in some ways looking to the American patriots um, for their um, inspiration um, and are arguing for some of the same things. They want free trade. They want an independent legislature or at least greater political power. Um, But one of the differences in Ireland and one of the reasons the Irish don't join in um, the American Revolution is that Ireland is ruled by a Protestant minority known as the Protestant Ascendancy. And the Protestant Ascendancy, who hold the political power, are worried about the majority Catholic population. Um, So they want greater political rights, but without granting too much freedom and power to the Catholic majority. So initially, Ireland... Um, embraces the American cause, but doesn't join in in an open rebellion in any way. But it sees its chance again later in the revolution. Um, After France joins the war in 1778, um, it sees an opportunity. So as I mentioned before, when France joins the war, the the war really comes to the British Isles. Um, And Ireland is legitimately concerned about a French invasion had raids on its coast. Um, There have been uh, attempts to invade Britain through Ireland in the past. And the Protestant ascendancy is concerned about this French invasion. There are few troops in Ireland. 
because they've mostly been siphoned off to fight in other theaters of the war. And so to defend their coasts, the Irish raise a militia, which they call the volunteers, a volunteer militia, mostly Protestant. Some Catholics are allowed to join, but it's mostly Protestant. And these volunteers, once they've been um, trained and are up in arms, um, reluctantly supported by Britain, who's worried about the defense of Ireland as well. These volunteers give the Irish Patriot Party leverage. They now have troops under arm, and they strong-arm Britain into concessions. Um, what they want is an independent parliament, which they're granted. They want free trade, which they're granted. And these goals achieved, um, they're, they're more or less satisfied. And, and one of the interesting things is that these concessions, if they had been granted the American colonies at the outset of the war, probably would have prevented America's independence. Um, and, and Britain grants these not willingly <laughs> under duress, but it does grant them um, in, in the 1780s. Um, it doesn't turn out terribly well for Ireland either. Um, however, uh, the, the, the Protestant ascendancy, once it's achieved its independent parliament and free trade, um, doesn't want to go any further. It still fears that Catholic majority in the country, and it fears that full independence from Britain would lead to uh, Catholic tyranny. And so it stops further reform in its tracks. And this leads to the growth of clandestine societies, secret societies, who are more, become more and more radical desire full separation from Britain. And during the French Revolution, these um, secret societies in 1798 will rise up in a rebellion against British rule. Um, and when they're suppressed, um, suppressed by uh, Cornwallis, um, as it would have it, um, uh, Ireland is stripped of its independent parliament, um, is unified with Britain and the United Kingdom is born. So there's this short window of an, of an almost independent Ireland. Um, it shares a king with Britain, um, but it has an independent parliament, um, but it's short-lived. So then elsewhere in Europe, Russia is affected by this, and people might not initially expect that, thinking that Russia might be fairly distant from the consequences of, of this war in North America. What's happening in Russia in this period? Yeah, Russia is one of these really interesting indirect consequences um, of what was becoming a global conflict. So Russia is a rising power in the period, and it has imperial ambitions. Um, it would like to uh, become a rival to the great empires, the great uh, seagoing empires of Europe, um, Britain and France and, and Spain. But the problem for Russia is it needs a warm water port. All its ports are in the Arctic um, or, uh, or the Baltic, and, and these freeze during the winter. And so it, it's difficult to have um, a, a sort of ocean-going naval empire uh, without a, a port that's free of ice all year round. Um, and so for, for quite a long time, Russia has eyed the Black Sea as a potential area for a warm water port to begin its imperial expansion. But the Black Sea area is controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire has for a long time been one of Russia's chief rivals in its region. 
Um, the Ottoman Empire is by the 1770s in a period of decline, but it has uh, historically been protected from the aggressions of Russia and Austria and other countries in the region by France and Britain. So during the war, when France enters and Britain and France are at war again, Catherine the Great sees her chance um, with some of these smaller countries of Northern Europe, countries like Denmark, um, Sweden, she forms what's called the League of Armed Neutrality, which seems sort of like an oxymoron. Um, and this, the ostensible goal of this League of Armed Neutrality is to protect the shipping of neutral countries. Britain and France, but especially Britain, uh, keep seizing the ships of these neutral countries during, during the war, uh, claiming that there is contraband on board being sold to America or France. And this angers some of these smaller countries. So they band together, um, led by Catherine the Great, in this League of Armed Neutrality. So banded together, um, this League of Armed Neutrality could tip the balance of the war if it joined on either side. So neither France nor Britain can afford to anger the League. And so knowing this, knowing that France and Britain can't intervene, Otherwise, they risk tipping the balance of the war. Catherine has her forces invade the Black Sea region. They invade the Crimea for the first time. <laughs> um, they, they conquer the Crimea. They kick out the Muslim Tatar population. They Christian, Christianize it. They rename towns, um, build Christian churches. Um, they Russianize it. They import Christians from other areas. Um, and set up and start to be, build their warm water ports in the Black Sea. Um, and this will, will lead to problems going forward, especially for the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Ottoman Empire um, tries to recover these possessions after the war, and it will lead to a series of wars with Russia. Um, but by this point, the Ottoman Empire has been fatally weakened. And again, it will take um, Britain and France propping up the Ottoman Empire to prevent it from being fully conquered by Russia and Austria. Uh, but it, it begins here. And then you move next to India. And it's perhaps not surprising that India is a theater of this war. It had been a substantial theater of the Seven Years' War only a little yeah. bit before this period. But what's happening in India in this period? So across the 18th century, um, the Mughal Empire, which had ruled most of India for a couple hundred years is in a period of, of terminal decline and sort of overstretched. And as it recedes and as power uh, recedes, there's a vacuum left behind. And so um, starting in, in the mid 18th century, um, there is a competition for power in India to replace the waning power of the Mughal Empire. And this is a competition that includes native Indian states, um, states like Mysore um, in the south of India and the Maratha Empire. Um, but it also includes European countries, France and Britain particularly, uh, Netherlands to a lesser degree, but, but really Britain and France. And so they're all competing uh, for the spoils of the Mughal Empire. And during the Seven Years' War, as you mentioned, um, there had been fighting in India. Um, and Britain had gained the upper hand, as it did in most places in the Seven Years' War. And so when the American War breaks out and France joins in 1778, one of the main war aims for the French 
is to redress this imbalance in India, to recover sort of parity with Britain in India, or perhaps to uh, drive Britain out of India uh, once and for all. And so France allies with um, one of the most dynamic states in India, the, the kingdom of Mysore. Uh, and Mysore is, in this period, um, an expansionist state, an imperial state. Um, it has um, embraced reforms inspired by some of the European empires. It has embraced European military technology and tactics. It's embraced um, a monopoly trading company like the British and the French have. Um, and it is expanding in its region in this period. The ruler of uh, Mysore, first Haider Ali, and then his, his son Tipu Sultan, are, are some of the earliest in India to realize the danger posed by the British, um, that the logic of the British Empire is continual expansion. And so, uh, realizing this danger, they become sort of ferociously anti-British. And so they're natural allies with the French. And what the French have that Mysore needs is a navy. Um, if, if Mysore is to really compete with Britain, it needs France's naval support. And so during the war, together, France and Mysore try to drive Britain out of South India. And they come close to succeeding. Um, Mysore's army is, is very impressive and wins huge victories, captures tens of thousands of, of British soldiers. Um, it has Britain on the ropes. Uh, it's, when the war ends, it's laying siege to the British forces on the coast in South, uh, Southeast India. And there's this moment where it seems like it's possible that there's a, a sort of Indian Yorktown. Um, Mysore under Tipu Sultan is, has, has the British sort of cornered. But unlike in America, um, when the French arrive at Yorktown to really seal the victory, in India, the French abandon the fight. The war is going not as well as they'd hoped in other areas. It's incredibly expensive, and they can't afford to keep it going. And so when peace comes, they're, uh, they're, they're excited to embrace the peace, and they, they abandon Mysore. They, they tell Mysore that they, uh, they must lay down their arms and stop the fight as well. Um, and so this moment, this is really the, perhaps the last best chance that uh, some of these native Indian states have to retain their independence and to prevent what becomes a British conquest of, of the subcontinent. Um, because without French support, um, France um, is crippled by its debts during the war and has its own revolution to deal with shortly thereafter. Um, without French support, Britain slowly, over the next couple of decades, conquers Mysore, the Maratha Empire, and slowly but surely most of the um, native states of India. Now, as all this is going on, and this sort of brings us back to our, our discussion about convicts being sent overseas, Australia opens up shortly after this for colonization. What inspires it, and how does it play out, especially in comparison to this earlier period of North American sort of settler imperialism? Yeah, so this brings us back to the uh, judicial problem, the dilemma that Britain had during the war. Um, when America stopped accepting British convicts uh, and Britain was looking for new places to send them, 
I remember I mentioned they, they had attempted to settle them in Africa, but they had all died. And so um, that was a thought to not be a viable solution. They had started this penal regime. They had started to build prisons, but there really weren't enough prisons to house these convicts. Um, there's an uptick in crime during the war, which is which is actually unusual, but um, it does mean that there are more more convicts just at a time where there's nothing to do with them. It, it takes a long time to build these new penitentiaries. Um, and they try using prison hulks, um, ships that hold prisoners. Um, but they still, have, they still have too many prisoners. And so um, they're looking for places to put them. Um, and, and it's at this moment that Australia becomes a potential solution. Australia had been sort of famously explored by Captain Cook um, a, a decade before. And it's now thought that perhaps they could, that the British could sort of kill two birds with one stone. It could, it could deal with its convict po- uh, problem, but at the same time stake a claim to this newly explored territory. Um, it assumes that European rivals at some point will hit upon Australia as a potential colony. Um, perhaps the French, perhaps the Dutch. And so in 1788, it decides to send what's known as the First Fleet, several ships full of convicts to Australia to establish a penal colony. And so this has um, become sort of famous as, as the, the sort of founding moment of, of modern Australia. But it's a very sort of bizarre scenario that the settlers of this of this new um, new country, this new colony, um, will be almost entirely British convicts. Um, in future generations, that will also be political prisoners. Um, some of the, the Irish rebels um, from 1798 um, will be sent uh, to Australia as well, where they'll continue to cause problems, uh, rebelling in Australia as well. Um, and this has enormous consequences for Australia, obviously. Um, the convicts bring with them um, European diseases. They bring with them the sort of violent logic of imperialism. Um, and we see um, a decimation of the uh, native inhabitants of Australia um, within a generation. Now, I'm curious, um, this, and your next sections... Britain has an especially complicated relationship with the with the slaves of its former possessions in North America, some of whom fight for the British, a few of whom actually receive their freedom because of that military service. But then the question remains, what to do with them? So how does that play out? And how does it ultimately lead back to Africa? Yeah, so, so Britain, um, during the war, mostly for expediency's sake, um, offers freedom to American slaves who um, escape to British lines and join British service against the American colonists. And um, thousands do so. Thousands flee to British lines um, and join the fight. Many of them um, working in sort of associated positions in the military, constructing defenses, hauling equipment, um, but also forming their own um, their own military units, um, some of which are, are, are highly effective. Um, so when the war ends, Britain has um, 
several thousand uh, former slaves in their lines uh, in places like Charleston and New York, especially. Um, the American, the, the now independent Americans want these slaves back. They claim the property unlawfully taken during the war and should be returned after the war. Washington even goes to New York to insist upon their return. Um, but fortunately, the, the British commander responsible for evacuating New York refuses. Um, he and many others in Britain feel like um, these people have um, sacrificed for the British cause um, and that they owe something to them. And the, the offer of freedom to, to slaves in return for service also inspires in some in Britain a mindset that Britain is an anti-slavery nation. Not entirely true. There's slavery in other areas of the British Empire still. Um, the slave trade is still legal, but it, it allows them to sort of set themselves up as different from America um, in this, this key area. And so there are many who feel like these, these former slaves are owed something. And so they, they promise to resettle them somewhere in the British Empire. Um, and some of them are, are sent to the Caribbean. Um, several thousand are transported to, to Canada, to Nova Scotia in particular, where they're promised land. Um, some others are, are sent to, to Britain itself, um, where they mostly cluster in London. Um, as unfortunately happens so often in history, the promises made um, in the immediate post-war period are slow in being kept. Um, the former slaves in Nova Scotia uh, in particular, had been promised land, but the land is slow in coming. White loyalists, refugees as well, um, are given first claims to land, new land in Nova Scotia. Um, the the so-called black loyalists are often given um, lesser land, and often their their grants of land are delayed. Um, there's also considerable tension and friction between the white population of Nova Scotia and these black loyalists. And it, at one point, it leads to a, a fairly bloody riot. Um, so for um, the people of Nova Scotia, these the black loyalists in Nova Scotia, um, these promises have been, have been uh, denied. And so they send representatives to Britain to plead their case. And in Britain, they meet up with um, abolitionists. The abolition movement is growing in this period. Um, and the abolitionists have hit upon an idea that they think will solve both problems. It'll um, offer land to these black loyalists, and they hope undermine the slave trade in the process. And what the abolitionists have planned is a, a new colony in Sierra Leone. And what they hope this colony does is it will offer a place for the formerly enslaved to have land to settle. Um, but also it will create a legitimate trading relationship between Africa and Britain. And that this legitimate trading relationship will show, the, um, show that the, the slave trade is unnecessary, that, that money can be made through legitimate, humane uh, trade between Africa and Britain. Um, and so um, these representatives of the Black Loyalists, uh, alongside um, 
an abolitionist named John Clarkson return to Nova Scotia. They raise recruits um, and they sail for Sierra Leone. And again, as happens in uh, imperial histories, um, the initial promises again are um, it's somewhat less than uh, what turns out to be the case. Um, the black loyalists, when they settle in Sierra Leone, think, believe that they will be in charge of the colony, that this will be their colony, that they'll be part of the, the sort of British constellation, um, but that they will be self-governing. And they are given some lower level offices in the colony, and they're given some voting rights, but the governors and the chief officials will remain British. Um, and this leads to conflict within the colony. There will at one point be an uprising that splits the colony against British rule. Um, it will fail, and eventually um, the Sierra Leone colony will be absorbed officially by the British Empire. Um, previously, it had been run by a, a private company uh, directed by these abolitionists. Um, and so one of Britain's first real territorial possessions or toeholds in Africa will be one settled by former slaves who had fought for the British during the American Revolution. Now, you end the book, I think, in a really interesting way by discussing China and opium and the complicated relationship of the East India Company. So how does the American Revolution dovetail with these things and what's the outcome? Yeah, so I think China's interesting um, in part because it brings the story in some ways full circle. Um, because it was uh, the, the difficulties that the East India Company had um, and the trade imbalance it had um, with China that in some ways uh, was a catalyst for the American Revolution in the first place. Um, in the years before the American Revolution, the East India Company was in sort of dire straits. Um, its finances were, um, were not in a good position. And so one of the things the British government did to attempt to prop up the East India Company is it passed the Tea Act. It allowed um, the East India Company to trade um, untariffed tea uh, in America, which undermined American uh, merchants um, and was a catalyst for the tea parties that broke out in Boston and in Annapolis and in other places in America and, and began to coalesce in, into a sort of revolutionary movement. So um, in part, it was this, this tea trade that um, and the East India Company that led to the war. Um, but the, the war itself also had consequences for the East India Company. Um, the independence of the American colonies cut off this vital market for the East India Company tea. Um, and so again, the East India Company was in a bad position post-war. I mean, one of its uh, one of its most uh, intractable problems was its trade imbalance with China. Um, the British had been trading with China since the 17th century, um, and China had a lot of things that British consumers and Western consumers wanted. It had tea. Um, porcelain, silk, and a host of other goods that um, Western uh, markets uh, desired. But Britain had very little that China wanted. China basically only wanted silver from the British. And this trade imbalance was one of the things that was undermining the viability of the East India Company. 
So after the war, the American colony's gone, and the East India Company looking for a way to right the ship, it looked at China, and it looked at this trade relationship. And the British were convinced that this trade imbalance was artificial. And you can see some of the echoes with um, modern American relationships with uh, China. Um, the British were convinced that um, the Chinese would adopt British manufacturers, British trade goods, if only they were exposed to them. And the key problem in this period was that trade between China and the West was highly restricted. Um, Western merchants were only allowed to trade uh, in one port, um, Canton. Um, they were only allowed to trade for one period of the year. There's a trading season. Outside of the trading season, they, they weren't allowed in China at all. Um, during the trading season, they had to live in factories, uh, trading posts that were cut off from the Chinese population. They were only allowed to interact with a group, uh, a sort of monopoly of government-appointed merchants, the Hong merchants. Um, they weren't allowed to interact with the Chinese population. They weren't allowed to learn Chinese. And so after the war, Britain thinks that if it can change this trading relationship, if it, if it can open it up um, to British trade goods, the Chinese will eventually adopt British goods and this trade imbalance will be righted. And, and so some of the problems caused by the American Revolution will be alleviated. And so they send uh, a diplomatic mission uh, led by a man named George McCarthy. McCarthy. Um, he had been uh, an officer in an official during the American Revolution. He was governor of Granada when it was um, conquered and, and then uh, uh had governed Madras in, the, in, in India. Um, he sent with a diplomatic mission to China. Um, in most cases, uh, the Chinese emperors refused um, to accept these sort of uh, diplomatic missions. There were no permanent diplomatic presence um, of Western powers in China. But the Chinese um, allow this diplomatic mission to meet with the Chinese emperor. Um, at the meeting, things sort of immediately go wrong. Um, the Chinese insist on a piece of sort of ritual di diplomatic protocol um, that the British ambassador um, prostrate himself and bow a certain number of times before the Chinese emperor. Now, McCartney refuses to do this. He says that his sovereign... George III, is an equal of the Chinese emperor. And so that he can't, um, he can't prostrate in, in himself in front of the Chinese emperor unless a Chinese official does the same to a portrait, in front of a portrait of George III, which McCartney has handily brought with him. <laughs> um, so the, the, uh, a compromise is worked out. Um, McCartney is allowed to kneel before the Chinese emperor as he would before his own king. But in the end, um, the Chinese emperor refuses Britain's requests. Britain wants um, a permanent diplomatic presence. It wants trading posts along the coast opened up to British trade, the end of this restricted um, practice of one port. Um, the Chinese refuse. The, the Chinese emperor sends a very condescending letter to George III in which he basically says, 
the Chinese empire produces everything we want. Britain produces nothing we want. We don't need anything from you. We will continue to sell us, sell you our, our goods, but on our terms. And back in Britain, this is seen as evidence of Chinese backwardness. And it really leads to a sea change in British and Western attitudes towards China. Um, before this period, China had often been used um, as an example of good governance. Um, Voltaire, for instance, wrote about China as um, sort of modern, bureaucratic, forward-thinking regime, sophisticated uh, governmental system. And that had been widely accepted uh, in much of Europe in this period. But in, in, in Britain and in elsewhere, they blame the failure of this McCartney mission on um, McCartney's refusal to prostrate himself, to kowtow before the Chinese emperor. And they take this as evidence that the Chinese are hidebound and backwards and obsessed with tradition and ritual and not adaptable and modern and forward thinking. In reality, McCartney's refusal to, to prostrate himself before the Chinese emperor had nothing to do with the Chinese emperor's decision. Um, a trade mission from uh, the Netherlands followed closely on the heels of the McCartney mission. And the, the Dutch representative did prostrate himself before the Chinese emperor. And it hadn't it done any good. The Chinese had still maintained their policies. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. The, the Chinese um, had their own internal problems. There had been a, a couple of uprisings within China. There was unrest on Chinese frontiers. Um, the Chinese emperor's predecessors had vastly expanded the Chinese empire into uh, Central Asia. Um, and um, these areas were still restive. They could also look to the example of Britain in India, um, where Britain had expanded from one tiny toehold um, to a series of trading posts to a territorial empire that now threatened to engulf the whole subcontinent. And so I think there were very practical reasons why the Chinese um, refused these trade requests. Um, but in Britain and Europe, it was taken as a, as a sign of their backwardness. And, um, and this really helped justify or rationalize what the British decided to do to right their trade imbalance. Um, the Chinese didn't seem to want any of the manufacturers or goods from Britain, but the Chinese did buy opium. And at the beginning of this period, opium is a, an expensive, sort of high-status good. Chinese elites will use opium um, sort of ritually, um, but it's not a, a widespread commodity. Um, in the years after the McCartney mission and its failure, the British and also the Americans will begin to flood the Chinese market with opium. Um, in the British case, opium from India. It's grown in India, transported um, to China. It's the sort of perfect trade good, and it's sold, and it becomes a mass market good. And so we see a sort of drug epidemic spread in China. It, as opium floods into the country, it ceases to be a high-status, expensive commodity and becomes cheap um, and so widely used, widely abused, um, uh, and leads to a real crisis for China. Its population is becoming um, addicted to this drug that's being sold by the British and the Americans. And in the 19th century, the Chinese twice attempt to prevent the British from importing opium. Um, 
the British respond, and this is one of those uh, odd and sad moments in world history, um, the British respond with force, uh, gunboat diplomacy, and go to war with China to insist that the Chinese continue to take their drugs, um, the so-called opium wars. And it's after these opium wars when it becomes very clear that although China is nominally independent, and the British Americans never attempt to conquer swaths of territory in China, that in terms of trade policy and foreign policy, um, China will be China's policies will be dictated by Britain and America, especially Britain. And for China, this um, ushers in what they call their century of humiliation, when, in which they are sort of pushed around and governed by the interests of Western powers. And, and I think this um, this history inflects um, a lot of the current debates over trade and the trade war between the United States and China uh, to this day. Um, remembrance of this period, the century of humiliation that, that really begins in the aftermath of the American Revolution. Now, I have one question really in some ways for my own personal edification. And I'm aware with any book, you have to pick a certain point at which to stop writing, especially when your book is over 400 pages long. It, it's difficult to um, just keep going ad infinitum, but I was curious. Native Americans are mostly absent from this narrative. You know, They're mentioned in places, especially in connection with Australia, but they're not specifically discussed. And this is a period when after 1783, U.S. territorial expansionism begins to pick up because these restraints that had been placed on them by the British have been removed. Was there a specific reason for leaving them out? So originally, um, in its original conception, um, the book included two further chapters or groups of chapters, um, one that specifically looked at the French Revolution um, and one that looked with, at um, Native Americans and the experience of the uh, North American frontier. Because you're right, um, one of the complaints of the American colonists, one of their grievances in the lead up to the revolution is that the British authorities are preventing them, or at least attempting to prevent them, from moving further west. Um, the British are worried about managing their empire and, um, and so don't want this continual push west. And, and American settlers hungry for land, want to keep pushing west. Um, and so um, one of the consequences of Britain's defeat and America's independence is that more and more settlers push west into Native American territories. Um, and we get this the beginning of the sort of manifest destiny that we'll see um, Native American territories uh, gobbled up and, and Native Americans in, increasingly restricted to smaller and smaller pieces of land. Uh, I mean, so this was part of the story um, for me, of, of, of sort of the global consequences of the American Revolution. Um, but as you said, um, you do have to find places to cut. And the original draft of this book was um, uh, almost twice as long as the book turned out to be. And um, yes, there was no way my publisher was, I was already well over uh, the, the contracted word limit. And so uh, there was no way we were going to fit all of this in. And so um, I had to make dis difficult decisions about what gets cut um, and what remains. And the way I, I decided it more or less was I looked at what had been covered before, um, where other historians um, had done what I thought was a good job of 
of covering this material. And I thought in, in both cases, in the case of the French Revolution, there had been a lot of um, material, not only about the French Revolution itself, but it's about its a continue to uh, its uh, connection to the American Revolution um, and its place in a wider sort of age of revolutions. Um, Jonathan Israel um, most recently had written a book um, about the age of revolutions that included the American Revolution and um, the French Revolution and the connections between the two. So I thought um, that although I had some uh, what I thought were novel things to say about it and my own take on the French Revolution, um, that it was something that could be cut because it had been dealt with before um, uh, sufficiently. And I, I felt the same way about um, the American West, the frontier, and Native Americans, that um, um, in part of the sort of national story of the American Revolution includes that uh, Western expansion and and um, the effect on Native American people, um, and it had been covered in in recent work like Alan Taylor's History of the American Revolution, and, and I thought um, those historians had done a, a a wonderful job covering that material. And again, although I had some um, different emphases and and my own take on things, I thought um, this was another area that had been had been covered and covered um, pretty well. Uh, and so while I I think um, I would have liked to include both of them. Um, it would have felt had a, a more com a full sense of completion um, to include both of them. There were those those places I had to cut, and I sort of decided that I would cut the things that were the best known um, and the most well covered. Hmm. Now, you've just finished this very substantial books, and perhaps it's impolitic to ask what you're thinking of working on next, but do you have a project in mind? Have you maybe even begun it? Yes. So I, I always uh, try to keep um, ideas, several ideas going at once and, and they don't always um, pan out, but uh, I, you know, I keep notebooks and lists full of potential ideas and sort of gather notes as I come across things. And so I'm always sort of working towards the next thing. And so um, uh, at the moment, what I'm working towards um, is uh, another broad history. Um, uh, although. Um, moving out of the 18th century or the long 18th century um, and looking at, um, I'm, I'm really interested in the experience and the history of um, refugees and exiles in British history. Um, and so what I'm working on now is a history of exiles and refugees in British history from Middle Ages, or perhaps even before, to the modern world. And I, I think there have been a lot of debates recently in Britain, especially around, around um, Brexit, about the place of refugees, um, exiles, uh, immigrants in, in Britain. I, I think a lot of those discussions are based on a sort of false sense of Britain as a, a sort of separate nation unconnected with the rest of the world, except in its sort of imperial endeavors, um, that its population sort of remains static and British. Um, and I'd like to, to complicate that by looking at the history of, of refugees and exiles, um, beginning in the Middle Ages, but especially in the Age of Revolutions, when um, Protestant refugees um, uh, find asylum in Britain, all the way up through um, uh, the modern period and, and the debates around Brexit and Syrian refugees, um, and, and perhaps even in a conclusion nod to the future in which um, climate refugees um, might become a notable issues uh, issue. So that's that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, yeah, another 
big, broad book that hopefully um, has some interesting relevance for um, the present age. I suspect, unfortunately, that it will continue to be relevant, for better <laughs> and for worse. Thank you so yeah. much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.